0: Welcome, everyone, to Nightmare Now, the show where we'll learn about all the horrors of our universe and psyche, and hopefully have ourselves a good laugh along the way. I'm your host, Eric Byrne, and on this episode, we're going to take an in-depth look at the true story of a killer. A serial killer operating on the fringes of society at the turn of the 20th century. A killer that dismembered and ate her victims, a killer with a kill count not 10, not 20, Not dozens, but hundreds of victims. A killer that was a Bengal tiger. The Champawat Tiger single-handedly killed 436 people in northern India and Nepal in the early 1900s. My main source for this episode was the book No Beast So Fierce by Dane Hucklebridge. It's a good read, and if you like the story you're about to hear, check out the book in the show notes for a more in-depth look. We're going to start out here with a stat sheet. I want you to see what a tiger is made of. Well, I guess I want you to hear what a tiger is made of. If you have a house cat handy, take a look at him right now and imagine that but 60 times larger. This is the world's largest living feline and second in history overall, only to the Smilodon, or the saber tooth tiger. They can range from or 500 pounds all the way up to 700 pounds, and extraordinary specimens tip the scales at over 800 pounds. They range anywhere from 10 to even 13 feet long with their tails included. That is a very big kitty. Now let's talk equipment. First of all, musculature. On our house cat George, you can see his clearly defined muscles, and he's only 11 pounds or so. So when we ramp that up to six to seven hundred pound cat, we're talking serious strength. Even without claws, a single swipe of a tiger's massive paw could knock your head clean fucking off your body, and easily break bones. They have a jaw that can bite down with over a thousand PSI, which can crack through a water buffalo's head, and wielded with that force are a set of three to four inch fangs, big enough to slam into a brain or rip out a spine. On their front paws, they have 10 claws that are also about 4 inches long. That musculature isn't just there to knock heads off. It's built for speed and finesse, too. Capable of short bursts of 40 mile per hour speed and the demonstrated ability to leap 30 feet through the air to pounce. They're fantastic swimmers and comfortable on land and in the water. A tiger's a very smart hunter and adaptable when it comes to their prey. They'll cripple larger prey by the legs and drive others towards the water where they're far easier to take down. They're solitary animals, generally, but the cubs stay with the mother for about two years, learning all these and other gruesome ways to kill. There have even been some recorded instruments of tigers mimicking the sound of other animals to lure them out, like predator. The predator comparison becomes even more apt when we take into account its spine-ripping behavior and spectacular stealth ability. When it wants to be seen and heard, though, you'll know. A tiger can roar at 114 decibels, which is like being next to 25 lawnmowers going at once. They'll eat pretty much anything they want. A tiger's diet includes, but is presumably not limited to, fish, turtles, badgers, rabbits, mice, bears, Wolves, deer, water buffalo, crocs, pythons, seals, even elephants, rhinos, and leopards, and of course, the reason we're talking about them today, humans. We'll get into how they eat a little bit later, but suffice to say for now, it isn't pretty. Tigers are basically the perfect killers. Like sharks in the water, Their predatory evolution perfected. But even still, they don't usually go after humans. They like bigger, meatier game, but when certain factors coalesce, you have an unmistakable recipe for a man-eater. We talked about the tiger's equipment earlier. Teeth and claws, jaws and paws. These are all integral parts of its hunting kit, and when there's an injury, the tiger has to adapt. Maybe it can't crush a buffalo's neck so easily anymore. Maybe it can't keep up with a fleet-footed deer quite as well anymore. A national park in India did a fantastic study of tiger attacks on humans in their area from 1979 to 2006. Some of the more interesting conclusions were that 66% of tiger victims were kind of stooped down with their backs turned. They never see it coming. But perhaps more importantly, a scrooched down human in the tall grass looks a heck of a lot more like normal prey than one walking around making all kinds of human noise even more incriminating was that most of the tigers that were actually able to be examined displayed injuries to their teeth or paws. And in the case of tigers that actually scooped people right out of their villages, every single one of them was impaired like this. And of the attacks overall, 90% of them occurred in areas where prey density has fallen and the habitats were degraded. So when we look at this uh. When we look at this, a clear pattern emerges. It's hard to foist a term like motive onto an animal versus a human, but let's make the case. These man-eaters, at the time of their first kill, are acting out of sheer desperation. They're hungry, their habitat is being encroached on, and they're unable to get their normal prey. They take a shot at a clumsy primate that's on their turf, ergo us, and even to an injured tiger, humans are no match. That's when it clicks. It clicks we're made of meat, we're readily available, we're weak, and we're slow. When a tiger realizes all of this after grabbing a farmer by the throat and dragging him into the jungle screaming without so much as a struggle, a very dangerous animal is born. And of those dangerous animals, there was none so dangerous as the Champawa tiger. She was born sometime in 1899 or 1900 in Nepal, We can imagine that she had a relatively normal childhood. cubhood. What do you call it? I guess it's not important. But at some point, she was injured by a hunter or a poacher's bullet. That shot was the catalyst for a better part of 500 deaths. When a tiger attacks a human, usually they don't have a chance. You're just scrooching down to cut some grass or take a piss or something then in less than a second you hear that tremendous roar and you have 40 cumulative inches of claws entering your back before those vice grip jaws clamp down on your neck and it's all over. And that's before even taking into account the sheer force that 600 pounds of muscle moving at a highway speed will do just on impact alone. If by the grace of God someone can survive the split second impact like getting hit by some fucked up Mad Max knife car intelligent enough to hit from behind and go for the throat, All the tiger has to do is shake its big head and tear those claws through you, and you're fucked. If you don't believe me, just do a quick Google image search of a tiger attack autopsy. The hole that one fang can put in a human neck is nightmare fuel. In the book, Hucklebridge sources a number of different, well-documented tiger attacks in all sorts of scenarios. There's tigers that swim out and rip people out of a boat, tear people from trees, and literally burst through the walls of people's huts to drag them away screaming like a goddamn pitcher of orange-flavored, bloodthirsty, nightmare Kool-Aid. And a particularly brutal one where two young children watch their father get pounced on and ripped apart, dragged away into the jungle, recounting the story, having grown up fatherless. Speaking of growing up fatherless, I think it's time we looked at the other side of the arena. The hero, so to speak, of this story. A man named Edward James Corbett. This dude was a legend. We'll get to know him a little better over the course of the show, but let's start with the basics. He went by Jim Corbett, which is how I'll mostly be referring to him for the rest of the show. Jim was born the eighth child of 16 of Christopher William and Mary Jane Corbett in Niantal in northern India in July of 1975. If I'm messing up the pronunciation of any of these places in India and Nepal, just please bear with me. His parents had come over from Britain years before and lived in India for some time. The book goes into a lot of great detail about his family history and the larger scope of the British presence in India during that time. But that's kind of beyond the scope of this show for now. The short version of all that is that Britain was going all over the world to kind of make everywhere else like Britain. Obviously, this model didn't work forever and was usually met with some kind of resistance violent or otherwise so the british and indian relationships were often tenuous and with all that being said growing up as a white kid in the jungle you're gonna have to take the hand you're dealt Corbett did just that going to school in the colony in the town they were at and at the same time going out and befriending the locals to learn more about the amazing natural world around him In this unique upbringing, he became kind of a missing link between the two cultures, where he could rub elbows and play cricket with the rich Brits, and the next day go out for a hunt with a village elder in the jungle. At six years old, his father died of a heart attack, so growing up with those connections to local men became even more important to forming the man he would become. His mentor gave him the first weapon and taught him everything he knew about tigers and the other wildlife of the jungle. At the time he first heard of the Champawa Tiger, which it wasn't called that at the time, but that's not really important, he was working at a train station, likely sometime in 1903. A British friend of his told him rumors of a single tiger snatching people away in nearby Nepal. I'll throw a map in the show notes that gives a pretty good estimation about Jim and the tiger's movements over those few years. Unfortunately, we don't have a lot of great records about the tigress herself in the early days in Nepal. Most of the historical records point towards the cat killing about 200 people before being driven out of the country. Bounty hunters were called in, part of the Nepalese army. Absolutely everything they had available they threw at her, and she evaded or killed and ate all of it. The sources we do have about the tiger leaving Nepal are mostly conjecture, but historically tiger hunts were accomplished by a huge amount of noise, guns, Elephants and screams driving a tiger into a suitable kill zone for people to take a shot. The Champawa tigress managed to escape all that and finally arrived in India. Now is as good a time as any to talk about the math at work here. An adult tiger needs 125 to 135 pounds of meat per week to survive. By all accounts, the Champawa tiger was killing a person a week for 8 or 9 years. A person in India and Nepal is going to fit that quota. We can figure one person a week for a year is about 52 people a year. Multiply that by 8 years, we get 416 people. And by 9 years, we get 468. The math works out well enough that with the corroborating sources we have, that the kill count was somewhere close to 200 Nepal and continued at that pace for another 4, 4.5 years in the Kumaon area of India, just west of its previous territory in Nepal. In 1907, Corbett is contacted by another hunter about a tiger that needs to be put down. Of course, it's the Champawat. He's surprised that it's still going after he puts together that she was the one he heard about back in 1903. When he hears that everything locals or British have thrown at this tiger had failed, he agrees to take the job, but with a couple of fun caveats. This bit is straight out of a movie. I'm paraphrasing, but he says, I'll take the job, but first you need to recall every other hunter or soldier already contracted to go after her and get rid of the bounty on her head. I'm not doing this for the money. I'm not doing this for the skin. I'm not doing this to be a poacher. I'm doing it because it's my duty for the colony. At the time, you were a tiger hunter for two main reasons. You were either a British pansy looking for yucks or an Indian poacher looking for bucks. So there was a desire for getting a fur pelt from them, and what really kicked everything into high gear was bounty hunting. During the British expansion into India, tigers were seen as a pretty big problem. Both symbolically as a tiger represented the untamed natural India compared to a civilized British colony, and also due, of course, to the fact that 700-pound cats were eating people and livestock. When turning in a single tiger, you could get the equivalent of a month's and month's pay as a lower class Indian. So it's no wonder why tiger hunting skyrocketed. Over 80,000 tigers were killed in 50 years, and with both locals and Europeans taking shots at tigers whenever they could, you ended up with a lot of very, very angry, very dangerous, wounded animals. Another thing that's important to consider here is the gun culture in India at the time. I'm not sure that's the right word, but let's roll with it. I don't really have time to dig too deep into the colonial politics of the time, and I'm not an expert. The short version is that the British show up in India, try to domesticate it, and make it more like a proper English colony. The problem with this is people usually don't take kindly to subjugation. Revolutions ensue and are subsequently put down, a big one in 1857. After this, Brits basically go on a gun-grabbing rampage, and so functionally nobody has weapons, and those that do are generally rusty pieces of shit. Again, more wounded and not killed tigers. Anything beyond the rusty piece of shit tier is prohibitively expensive and also generally illegal. Corbett has just begun thinking about how he's going to bag this tigress when a man breathlessly runs into the village saying that the tiger has killed another person in Pali, 60 kilometers away. He gathers up five or six kumayanis that he's recruited, packs up his gun and his supplies, and starts a trek towards Pali. The hunt had begun. The group takes off towards Pali, and they are hoofing it big time. They carry their gear because, keep in mind, cars are a long way off at this point. The Model T doesn't come out until the next year, and rural India wasn't exactly the first on the list to get them. So they're hiking at 30 kilometers a day to make it to Pali in two days. For us Americans, that's about 37, 38 miles total and about 19 miles per day. Not an easy walk. When they finally arrive, they're surprised to find it a ghost town there's nobody in the square or on the street and they call out basically just to scream and see if anyone's there and then the smell kicks in the whole village reeks of piss and shit a few of the villagers cautiously emerge from their homes the whole village has been locked down and everyone has been inside for five days people are literally staying inside their houses shitting their pants with fear They're too afraid to even go out to dump the human waste or gather more food, so on top of these unsanitary conditions, they're also beginning to starve. A few villagers explain that the demon tiger is here, and it has been for a few days. At night, they cower from its roars in the jungle. All this makes everything all too real to Corbett. If he didn't know it wasn't an ordinary tiger before, he sure did now. He has to see the kill site, but nobody in town is willing to go anywhere near that accursed place. Corbett needs to see the tracks and other markings on the tire to get a better picture of the size of her. Again, we're hit with the distrust of whites in India. Even when Corbett can speak the language and grew up there, nobody is willing to risk going out to the kill site. They don't trust the outsider, and they're scared for their lives. Corbett takes the message and... Decides he needs to earn their trust. So the first night he goes out alone and sits next to a tree, trying to keep watch all night. The tigers are kind of partial to the man made roads. It makes it easier than climbing through the jungle, and when you're eating people, what does it matter if you run into them, right? Corbett writes down in his book just how terrified he was sitting out there alone that night. He says he saw dozens of tigers. Behind the trees, along the side of the road, just tricks of the light, his teeth chatter from the terror and the cold, and eventually he falls asleep hunkered down under this tree. To him, it's a miracle he survives the night. The tiger was still, without a doubt, nearby, possibly even watching him that night. To me, it's a miracle he survived the night too, especially considering the nighttime capabilities of a Bengal tiger. Their eyes have night vision six times more sensitive than our own, and their radar-like ears can pick up the faintest sounds, like a breath or even a heartbeat. Couple those with their big-ass padded paws, and that makes them nearly silent as they walk. He wouldn't have stood a chance if she was hungry. So, when he wakes up and comes back to the village the next morning, the villagers were impressed with his bravery, or stupidity, But still, they refuse to take him to the kill site. He takes off into the bush with a few of his crew for a little while until he finds a few Gural deer sitting up on a ridge. That's good eating. He readies his rifle and he fires. Bam! The deer falls down the hill, but the shot scared out two more. Bam, bam! He hits both of those two at 200 yards like he's putting together some kind of fucking Call of Duty montage. All three animals fall, and he brings them back to the village. Finally, when given food, the villagers agree to take him to the site. So one guy takes him and explains what happened. They were all out in the field, and this girl climbed up into the tree, and she got ripped out of it with such force that the skin from her hands was still clinging to the bark. They followed the trail of dried blood and eventually made it to a clearing. This place looked worse than Carrie's prom night. There was blood everywhere, but no tiger. And even more disturbing, no body. At at least not intact. Just a few scraps of flesh and bones that would have fit in a restaurant to-go box. Fuck. Finally, though, he got a chance to look at the paw prints. Corbin judges the tiger to be female... Around 12 years old, this tracks well with everything we already know about her time in Nepal and across Kumaon. Let's get into the feeding habit of tigers here. Because this is obviously the most offensive place to put it in the entire show. So, these tigers basically scoop up anything by the neck and just take off. That's how it can snatch people up so damn easy. They can drag a 500-pound water buffalo around, so they can pick up an Indian woman like they're playing fetch. According to Google, the average Indian woman today is five feet tall and weighs 120 pounds. Tigers scoop up their prey and find a nice secluded location to basically gorge themselves for a few days. Once it's in a suitable locale, they'll just start chomping and ripping away the meat, starting with the butt. They'll eat for an hour or so, then just lounge until they're hungry again. Is this the right script? Is this my Saturday plans or is this the tiger? They'll rip <laughs> They will repeat this cycle until everything edible is consumed. The place is going to look like the set of The Thing, just a few shards of bone and a lot of blood. They have sandpaper-like tongues to strip away the flesh, and several different types of teeth to help tear apart meat and consume everything. A starving tiger can eat a cow in about four days, so estimating the time to eat a person puts it in the neighborhood of two to three days. When they're done, they just leave behind this crime scene and go somewhere else to hunt for the next meal. When they take off like this, they can be extremely difficult to track over such a huge territory. Tigers in their territory move in a constant patrol while they hunt. After the whole process I just described takes place, the tiger moves to a new location and it repeats. Realizing this, the village people weren't able to track it per se, but were sort of able to tell when it was in the area, mostly because one of them would get carried off into the night screaming. When this occurred, the whole village would lock down until the tiger moved to a new location. This this kind of patrol certainly contributed to the tigress' colossal kill count. Yeah. There's this hugely delayed response when a tiger attacks someone. Nobody really has guns due to the uprisings I talked about earlier, And uh, most notably the one in 1857. So they have to send some dude over on foot to a place with the British government. And getting the wheels of government moving in order to even dispute a goddamn parking ticket even today is nearly impossible. So setting up a bounty and hiring a hunter contractor to go after it will take like a week. By the time the hunter gets over there, there's nothing left but splotches of blood and little bits of bone, and the tiger's 30 miles away to do it again. If you thought herding cats was hard, imagine trying to do it with government assistance, and the cats are 700-pound killing machines. Back to our story. When they bring home what's left of this girl, they ask around to see where the tiger is now or where it may be headed. Nobody really knows, but the consensus is that it's going back to the Champawat village. The tiger operates in a huge swath of land all around Kumeon, and Kumeon itself is about the size of Wyoming. The Champawat tiger was responsible for 95% of the tiger fatalities in that region at that time. But the nexus of deaths and the sightings was right there in the village of Champawat. So the group packs up and... Gets ready to hike to Champawat. I really hope I'm saying Champawat right, but uh, it's kind of fun to say. Jim Corbett arrives in Champawat on May 9th, 1907, with his Kumeani buddies, plus one or two extra guys from Pali brave enough to try to end this reign of terror. In Corbett's memoir, he makes an interesting note about the Tisildar, who, from what I can understand, is some sort of village elder caretaker like figure. This isn't a local Indian politics podcast, so sue me. He makes a note about how the guy was going to spend the night at his bungalow, and then he just says, screw it, and walks home in the last minute. I've done my fair share of long walks home at night, but this is a time and place where any average dude is afraid to walk the streets without a group of at least five people, just in case one of them gets attacked and carried off. This dude just pieces out and walks four miles home alone in the dark. When the guy leaves, Corbett falls asleep and he spends the night basically having nightmares of getting ripped apart by a tiger and barely sleeps a wink. And after all the research I did on tigers, I really can't say I blame him. But he's actually going after the most notorious one in history. I'm sitting in a closet making jokes about it. God damn, it's hot in here. When Corbett wakes up, he's chatting with his squad of six or seven guys, trying to assess where the tiger might strike next and what their next move should be. He's doing the 1907 version of Where We Drop In, Boys. And as if on cue, this dude runs down the road screaming that the tiger has grabbed another girl. Victim 436. We're in the end game now. This time they actually take him to the site of the attack, and when he gets there, he does a quick interview about it, how it went down, and he's surprised to find that the tiger snatched this girl up in broad daylight, in a field surrounded by dozens of other people. It was very, very good at what it did. And I guess a little bit more about tiger stealth. A tiger is able to conceal itself in knee-high grass, approach almost without sound, because of those big-ass paws we talked about earlier, and jump out with ludicrous speed. They're well camouflaged. You might think that orange isn't a great camo color, but... Look at uh, today's hunters. They all wear bright orange tree camo because prey animals don't see it. That's that's my understanding, at least. And animals that do see it, like us, would even have trouble picking out the orange from the light kind of filtering through the leaves and the trees. Corbett tells the villagers to stay inside and wait for him to get back. He starts tracking after the tiger from the site of the attack and finds a swath of destruction in its wake. There's hair, clothing, and blood leading into the tree line. Partway along the course of this blood trail, he hears fast footsteps behind him and goes and whirls around thinking he's about to be desert and almost shoots this villager's head off. Luckily, he doesn't unload his weapon on this poor bastard, and the guy explains he's here to help because he is one of the only guys in town that actually has a gun. Imagine you're on the trail of this legendary tiger and something comes crashing through the bush behind you without warning. I would have gunned him down accidentally and been thrown in an Indian prison. The problem is this dude is an oaf. He's loud and he doesn't know anything about hunting, so he's more of a liability. So Corbett makes this guy climb up on top of a tree and just sit there until he gets back. He can't send him back because then the guy would have to go back alone and could likely get mauled by a tiger. So that's that's just a little bit of the story that's so fucking funny to me. After leaving that guy up on top of the tree, he finds the tiger's feeding zone, and oh boy, it's a doozy. From his own words, from his own words, I'm going to... splinters of bone were scattered round the deep pug marks, into which discolored water was slowly seeping, and at the edge of the pool was an object which had puzzled me as I came down the watercourse, and which I now found was part of a human leg. In all the subsequent years, I have hunted man eaters. I have not seen anything as pitiful as that young, comely leg. Bitten off a little below the knee, as clean as though severed by the stroke of an axe, out of which warm blood was trickling. Jesus. So, for the record, the pug marks are are the tiger tracks. While he kneels down to inspect the carnage, he hears a growl, and in a split second whips around and fires off both barrels of his weapon. This is it. That tiger is fucking here. In his haste, he misses both shots, but the gun blast sound alone is enough to give the tiger momentary pause. It dashes off its collision course, drops the body of the girl, and lets out a colossal roar. And that is where we'll pick up next episode. I'm just kidding, folks. I wouldn't do that to you. We had a whole story to finish here. The tiger roars and then picks up the body again and takes off with her in their teeth. And Jim follows right after it even though he's only got one bullet left. But a person isn't going to keep pace with the tiger under pretty much any circumstance, and after a few hours, the trail goes cold, and night begins to fall. If you're taking your chances with a single bullet with a murder tiger from hell, you're brave. If you're doing it at night, you're stupid. He goes back to grab the villager off his tree that he's still sitting on. While this stooge comes down from the tree, he looks out at the valley. Jim knows that almost being the tiger's next meal and hopelessly trying to keep up with it through the undergrowth is not a winning strategy and would end up either with him being ripped apart by the tiger or losing it in the night as it goes off to its next victim which could be dozens of miles away. It has to be here and it has to be tomorrow. In the movie of this I direct once that fat podcast money comes rolling in This is where I put the heist scene, where they show everyone laying down the blueprints and also cut to each part of it as it's being planned. I can't remember if that's Ocean's Eleven thing or Usual Suspects or what. It's not important. I'll fix the movie trivia when we do a bank robber episode or something. This is where Corbett gets his crew together. All he has to do is convince a bunch of people that have already had their fair share of horrors come directly from Britain and people so fucking scared they won't even leave their house to take a shit when the tiger is around to join up and help Jim Corbett the Whitey. Easy, right? He asks his guide in town, the Tisildar, to help rally the troops, so to speak, and heads to bed. The next morning, he sets up, hoping to get a few hundred people to help bring down this beast. This is Beowulf's assault on the Grendel's lair. This is going after Smaug. This is Ahab's white whale. This is the stuff of legends. And nobody shows up. Then at 10 a.m., his buddy the Tisildar from the village shows up with that oaf from the other day. It's a nice gesture, but it's not enough to slay the beast by any stretch. Twenty minutes pass, and two or three more show up. Then a few more, five here, and three more there. And by noon, almost 300 people have shown up. Many of them had illegal guns, and the elders in the village hinted that nobody would care about the guns. Just this once. So they've put together this literal ragtag army of farmers and craftsmen wielding old guns, sticks makeshift spears, wood axes, basically anything they can pick up. Corbett meets one lunatic with a hammer that had two sons and his wife eaten by this thing. This is like a late mise style moment where the people rise to fight up against tyranny, the tyranny of nature. And I I want to take a minute to reiterate that this is a 100% true story. It's unbelievable. So the tiger is somewhere down in a nearby gorge, feeding on that poor 436th victim. There's only one way out of the gorge, short of climbing the ridges on three sides. And the team lines up equidistantly all along the top of the ridge. And Corbett and the Tisilda from town hide alone at the mouth of the gorge with their guns ready. All was set up for Corbett to give a signal for everyone around the ridge to just start making a fuckload of noise from all three sides, throw rocks down, and just generally cause disturbances to flush her out to where Corbett was waiting. There was just one problem. You guys remember that scene in Lord of the Rings where the one-eyed dude accidentally shoots the orc too early and fucks up the whole siege? That happens. That happens. That happens. And the people on the ridge get antsy and someone blasts off a gun prematurely and everyone else is like, fuck it, I guess we're starting, and follows suit. The problem is Corbett and the Tzildar aren't even in place yet. He has to run 500 feet to get to his planned position and the tiger comes careening out of the forest like a fucking bat out of hell. There's no time and there's just a split second of realization, likely from both the tiger and Corbett, that only one of them is getting out of this alive. But he hesitates. The Tisildar doesn't and takes a shot with his piece of shit shotgun and misses wide. The panic messes up Corbett's shot as well and it's just enough to throw the tiger off and she runs back into the gorge towards all the people that are shittily armed and don't know how to deal with a the tiger. They messed up their one chance and it could get bad. And then a stroke of luck. The people up on the ridge, however, well out of the sight of any of this behind the trees, hear the gunshot and they all assume Corbett shot the tiger. They shoot off their guns into the air and start cheering. This second wave of sound is enough to give the operation a second chance. The tiger hears all this extra noise. The tiger runs back out from the gorge where Corbett is waiting. Corbett sees the tiger fly out of the gorge and raises his rifle and fires off a shot that actually hits her back flank. She twists in rage and agony and turns to face him in charge. He fires again and hits her in the shoulder. I assume after that he was probably shitting his pants. Jim Corbett carries a double barrel rifle. And since childhood he has a habit of carrying exactly three bullets with him. He's already shot his three bullets. He's got no bullets left, he's got a very fucking angry, man-eating tiger, and she isn't down for the count yet. He has one shot, one insane chance of survival. He has to run back to the DeSildar to get his gun. He makes the breathless dash, and in doing so, the tiger finally sees what all the searing pain she's experiencing is from. Zeroed in on Corbin, she charges. His partner from the village must have had his eyes go wide from shock as it dawns on him what Jim is doing. Corbett is gesturing for him to throw the shotgun to him while he runs by. He tosses the shotgun into the air, disarming himself. And that gun must have hung into the air for what seemed like an eternity in that split second. Corbett catches the shotgun and whirls around with the tiger 20 feet from him, ready to leap, moving at 40 miles per hour. He raises the shotgun and... (explosion) The Champawa Tiger is dead at his feet. Upon investigation of the body, they could see the cause. The cause of all the mayhem, all the carnage... Of all the literally ripped apart families, all the fear, all of it. The tigress's teeth were wrecked long ago, one fang taken clean off and another broken in half. She was unable to hunt her usual prey. It was some unknowing hunter that had done this to her and set her on this path. Nature isn't evil. In the village, people celebrated. that They were finally free from the grip of fear. There's a substantial epilogue to this story, though. The Chapawatt tiger may have been the first superman-eater in 1900s India, but she would be far from the last. The conditions of habitat destruction, colonial encroachment, industrialization, poaching, and all that weren't going anywhere anytime soon. And many more tigers and leopards claimed many more lives. Some estimates put the toll at close to a million people over the last 500 years or so. Jim Corbett himself went on to hunt a few more of these notable man-eaters, including a leopard that had at least 129 confirmed kills. He went on to publish his memoirs and several other books about his time in the Indian jungle, and those all sold fantastically well. In his later years, he dedicated himself to tiger conservation, founding a national park to preserve them that now bears his name. In 1907, there was an estimated 100,000 tigers in the wild, and now there's somewhere in the neighborhood of 4,000. Fur trade in China, we'll get into China on another episode, don't worry, In other countries, poaching and tigers losing 90% of their habitat presents a bleak picture, but not an impossible one. Many governments have put together a pact to try and double tiger populations by 2022, If you want to help out with tiger conservation, first, don't kill or shoot them. And secondly, I'll I'll put some links to the World Wildlife Fund. And if you know, I don't know, a better organization to go to, uh, let me know at nightmarenowpodcast at gmail.com. And I'll I'll put those up as well. That'll be in the show notes. Again, my name is Eric Byrne, and my email here is nightmarenowpodcast at gmail.com. If you have questions or comments, I'll do my best to address them on the show or get back to you somehow. I'd love to hear from you. And if you're still listening, I want to honestly, truly thank you from the bottom of my heart. I can't can't really express how much it means that you found my show worth your valuable time. I've wanted to put this together for a long time now. Check out the social media links and uh, any other links in the show notes and I'm so excited to have you all along on this journey together. We're gonna get nightmares, we're gonna laugh, we're gonna learn, and we're starting now.